friends, after a couple months, we have come to the end of our series on the Lord's Prayer, which is actually embedded in a larger series of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so our passage today is Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, but I'm going to go back to 9 so that we start from the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's say this last verse together on the count of three. One, two, three. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are here in your presence as your word is being given to all of us. As you show yourself through your word. Give us eyes that see. Give us ears that hear. Give us minds that understand. Give us hearts that seek transformation. And remind us once again that this is no passive activity that we are doing. We are not just gathered here listening to what a speaker has to say. But we, every last one of us, are engaging with you through your word in the power of your Holy Spirit as you show us again and again and again that you love us and that you have saved us in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. And so we've come to the last petition, the last line of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We pray this prayer a lot. You know, the kids, we've, dis- uh, we've uh, sent them down to kids' worship. And at the end of every kids' worship, they end with the Lord's Prayer. For their creed, for most of this year, they have done the Lord's Prayer three times, unpacking each petition, just as we've been doing uh, in our sermon series. And how about those of you who grew up in the Catholic Church? How many Our Fathers have you said in the course of your life? All right, I- I- just uh, let's, looking around, who thinks that they've tossed up, let's say, 100 Our Fathers? All right. How about 500 Our Fathers? 1,000 Our... 5,000 Our... Oh, okay. Ooh, we've got, we've got some. And so, keeping in mind that you might have had to say Our Fathers because you were in trouble a lot as a kid. So, everyone be warned who you're sitting next to might not be the person you think they are. Now, do you believe every line? What kind of question is that? It's a legitimate one. Do you believe every line of the Lord's Prayer? You see, I can pray confidently that my Father is in heaven. And I can say, holy is your name. Your name be praised. And I can, 
I can say that your kingdom come. I want your, to king, your kingdom to come. I see that it has come in Jesus Christ. And I want your will be done here, just as it is perfectly done in heaven. I want your will to be perfectly done in my life, in my heart. And daily bread, I have never gone hungry a day in my life, apart from nine sad days of survival training in the Air Force. And that's not what this verse is talking about either. So daily bread covered. God, thank you. I believe. And I do believe with all my heart that my debts are forgiven in the one who has come to give up his life and as I see Jesus, and the more I see Jesus, the more I want to forgive all those who sin against me. But then it's this last one that I have trouble with. Lead us not into temptation. And it's kind of a throwaway line for me. Because I still get led into temptation a lot. How do you make sense of this? And I know, well, maybe I should ask the question. I'm not alone in this, am I? <laughs> no, no, I, I know you. So, how do you make sense of the fact that we pray this prayer and we still get led into temptation? And so I have to come up with thoughts like, must have forgotten to pray. Or, I must not have prayed it hard enough. Or, Theologically, I'll have to jump through a hoop and say, God didn't lead me into the temptation, just like James chapter 1 said. I went myself. And I'll say, God, it would be nice if you answered this last line in the Lord's Prayer, but I'm 50-50 on this, God, just tossing it out there. be kind of nice. But this is our Lord's advice on prayer to us. This is how he taught us to pray. So let's see what he can mean by this. Our first point, what did the original disciples hear and what do we hear today? See, the great thing about preaching a sermon series is that you have context and you all know that Jesus Christ in this sermon that John called the greatest sermon ever told, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been telling a lot of things. And as the hearers, the first disciples and the crowds, as they were sitting on rocks and on grass, as they were listening to Jesus, what were they thinking? Were they thinking, oh, never thought about it like that before. That's pretty cool. Or did they have some detached academic interest saying, that really understands how our Judaic ethic operates and we, we should go back and study this a little bit more. No. Jesus just raised the stakes on everything. Remember the sermon so far. Jesus said that before God, who has given his people commands to obey and follow, angry people are murderers. The person who looks lustfully at someone else is an adulterer. Someone who desires revenge in their heart when they've been wronged, well, they're wrong. The people who are being generous 
It means nothing. If you're not doing it, if you're doing it for your own glory and you can be a hypocrite even if you pray passionately. See, those who are listening to Jesus, they could not possibly have taken it easily because Jesus Christ just said that they are all condemned to die. Everything that I just said right there, in the Old Testament, it's a capital crime, punishable by death. And so whatever they came to the mountain expecting or thinking they were going to hear, it wasn't that. So at this point, when Jesus gets to how you should pray, these people, they're crying out to be saved. They're not just asking, oh, well, this is pretty interesting. Well, I'd like to be able to pray to God better knowing this stuff. No, they are crying out to be delivered. Delivered from their sins that Jesus has just laid out before them. And he has made the case That they have chosen a way other than God's way. That they have chosen someone other than God. And that their sins have put them in treason against God. And so when they get to this verse that we've read today, they are crying out, Lead us not into temptation. Because they understand full well that sin leads to death. What is temptation? It's what makes the thought of sinning palatable, sane to us, even attractive. And they're holding on to Jesus' words and saying, Yes, I am tempted to anger, to lust, to revenge, and to to pride. Lead me not into that temptation which causes me to sin. And James 1, that we read during scripture reading, says how that process happens. It's not God that tempts you. But your own evil desire drags you away and entices you with the things you like, with the things you desire, with the things you know. They're a part of you. Then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Temptation is the bait that covers the hook. For whatever reason, fish think that bait floating around on a hook is attractive. Even the bait by itself, if you just threw sandworms into the water, they'd go after it. And fish can be forgiven that because, well, fish go after anything smaller than themselves. What's our excuse? Because temptation isn't taking something that is inherently good and making it more beautiful. It's like taking a dead animal carcass, throwing a potato sack on it, slapping some makeup, and saying, man, I want a love. 
temptation is looking at a cesspool and saying, man, I want to take a refreshing dip in that pool. Temptation is taking something that says, I want to go against the God who created me and loved me and knows what I need. And I want to make my own way. It's insanity. And so each time we are tempted, it's a trial of faith. It's a trial of faith because your mind and your heart are going through these gymnastics to try to make something else seem better than the goodness of God and His love. And we hear the same thing today, don't we? It's not just the crowds and the disciples back then. To us, you know, John Owen, and it wasn't really today, but one of the greatest Puritan writers, and certainly the best on the subject of temptation and sin, said this, The custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. The course of the world takes away the shame of it. Let me say that again. The custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. All right, so it's old language, but he's saying that sinning is like eating potato chips. You rarely ever eat just one. The more you do it, the easier it is to keep doing it. You know, you never download just one pornographic image off the internet. Those child pornographers, they never get caught with just five images of kids. It's 50,000. Sinning helps you sin more easily. If you've slept with one person before getting married, it's a lot easier to convince yourself that, hey, having sex with someone else I can deal with that. It won't hurt me that bad. I survived the first one. The more you yell at your spouse or your child, the easier it is to yell at them again and again. And the second half of that quote, the course of the world takes away the shame of it. Everyone does it, so it's no big deal. And advertising and television and movies show that every sort of vice is not just possible, not just permissible, but acceptable. All you, do, all you have to do is find a chat room or a club or a workshop that lets you do what you desire to do. And honestly, it's so turned around right now today that there's a sense that if you're not indulging your desires, there's something wrong with you. Make a sex tape, get a reality show out of it. Behave like a bunch of idiots. Get a reality show out of it. Get pregnant freshman year in high school. 
get a reality show out of it. What sort of chance do our teenagers have if this is what they think is normal? And how many of you were tempted to anger, to sin as I was this week? You know, as you saw in the news, you know, our embassies on fire, you know, and pictures of our dead consulate and ambassador. You know, tempted to see and desire other people's deaths as recompense for the deaths of our fellow citizens. You know, even news, you don't take it neutrally. Do you join me in my desire to have this heart that the original hearers, that the disciples, and that John Owen had? The desperation that they had in reading this verse, crying out for a savior, crying out for deliverance from temptation and from the evil one. So our second point, why did Jesus teach us this prayer? Why did Jesus teach this to us? And we have to remember that this is Jesus' prayer before it is any one of our prayers. Jesus prayed this first, not as an example. This wasn't just a learning lesson, an opportunity. This wasn't just teaching people how to pray. How many times do we read in Scripture that Jesus Christ went off to a quiet place by himself to pray? How many times after a ridiculously long day of ministry did he at night go off by himself to pray? And so Jesus isn't just teaching something to his disciples here. He is showing what he himself does. And we can hear in his voice, Father in heaven, The Father in heaven truly is Jesus Christ's Father. And he can say, knowing full well what that kingdom of heaven looks like, your kingdom come. And he knows what it's going to take to bring that kingdom into this world. He has come to bring that kingdom in. And Jesus Christ trusts, trusts his Father. And he calls us to trust him. And every day on earth that he existed, in his earthly form, Jesus Christ prayed and received that provision and trusted God the Father for that. This is Jesus' prayer first and foremost. And we get to this last verse, and in it, it wraps up everything that came before. Far from being a throwaway line, this is the climax of the Lord's Prayer. Because it says everything about what Jesus has come to do and how Jesus lived his life. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he prays to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. He knows full well what he is about to go into. He knows that he is about to suffer and be humiliated and die. 
He knows that on the cross, the Father in heaven, He whom He has lived in love eternally with before, will turn His face from Him. And Jesus Christ will experience hell on the cross. And Jesus Christ says, if it's possible, let me not be led into this. But your will be done. Jesus Christ knew when he was teaching. So the disciples didn't get this at this point, did they? They knew they needed a savior. They knew they needed deliverance. They didn't know how Jesus had come to usher that in. Jesus knew. And Jesus knew that the only way that we would be able to say, God, please deliver us from the evil one. Please deliver us from the consequences of our sin. Please deliver us from death. Would be for he himself to die on the cross for our sins. But even there, Jesus Christ knew that the Father would not leave him in the grave. Even there, he knew that he would be raised from the dead. And therein lies our hope because there is an empty tomb. We know that our death is not the end of us. And so the Lord's Prayer, when you pray it this way, it is a recitation of a mini gospel. Every time you pray this, you are trusting that there is a God in heaven, that He is your Father because Jesus Christ has invited us in as adopted brothers and sisters and in Jesus Christ, in His work on the cross, we are ultimately delivered from our sins. You know, that first part, lead us not to temptation. It's the first part of our plea, but it is not the strongest plea in that sentence. We cry out to be delivered. But now, this side of the cross and the empty tomb, we know that Jesus Christ has delivered us. You know, Jesus' last words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he invites us, as he teaches us to pray, to trust his Father the way that he trusted him. To place all your fears, all your hopes, all your needs, all your dreams, and say, Father, I know you love me. And the evidence for your love for me hung there on the cross. And so, the third point of our message today, how can being delivered change how we live? Three quick points. It makes us bold it gives us reason to trust God, God's word. And it causes us to hate our sin. It makes us bold. We are delivered. You know, 
Not many of you have probably gotten into fights in your life, I hope. All right, but you know, I can tell you from firsthand experience that it would be wonderful. You know, in a boxing record that's a one and three, which is a one victory and three losses. One victory by just making weight. 117 pounds back then. The other guy didn't make weight. That's a win. Three losses in the ring. All right? And I can tell you. All right, Charles Chai is shaking his head here, right here. I can tell you that it would be wonderful to know going into a fight that you're going to win. You would be able to go in with such confidence, with such joy in what you were doing. You could have fun with that. You could do bold and crazy things with that. If you knew the outcome from the start, no living, knowing that you've been delivered from the evil one and from the consequences of your sin because of Jesus Christ, who hung there bearing the consequence, the wages for you. We are delivered. So live praying not to be not to be led into temptation, but knowing that ultimate deliverance has happened in Jesus Christ. He is Christus Victor. That's an old way, old title that means that he is the one who has defeated sin and death and the devil. Jesus Christ isn't in heaven, wondering, wringing his hands, thinking, oh, how's this going to turn out? He is victorious. And in Him, Scripture says, you also are victorious. In Him, you have died to your sin and to death. And in Him, you have risen from the grave. And how confident can you be when you hear this from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You're not being helped by someone who doesn't understand what you're going through. All right, youth group students, it's like you're being helped on your SATs by the guy who wrote the questions. And, you know, this is uh, the, those who are in John's greenhouse or have been through John's, John's greenhouse class. You do those memory verses on the back of that book. You punch them out and make those cards. And one of the ones that I love most is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can bear up and stand up under it. So there's even a regulation, a limit to the extent that you can be tempted. So go and live boldly and courageously. Jesus, and God has been saying this to us since the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 3.16 Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave 
nor forsake you. Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, and the reason that he gave for not sticking around until the end of the age is that he said, I am going to send you my counselor, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Having him with you is going to be better for you even than me sticking around because in him I will always be with you. So be strong, be very strong, and be ridiculously courageous. You know, my son, Ethan, he lives life with a reckless abandon. It's not according to wisdom, all right? He climbs. And if any of you would like to borrow him, babysit him, and just see what he's willing and capable to do, you're, you're welcome to. <laughs> just a bad father. <laughs> so, but he climbs with no thought to danger. We found him sitting on top of the refrigerator, all right? He would climb to the top of the Pyramid of Giza and then start thinking about, how am I going to get down? But the believers you've read and heard about, the ones that were able to do crazy things for the sake of Jesus Christ, they are the ones who recognized that they had nothing to lose because they had already gained everything in Jesus Christ. So be bold. Be courageous. Second, this gives us reason to trust God's word. God's word is where we found out that we are delivered. God's word is where we see the plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we can have confidence in that word. And even look at Jesus Christ and what he did when Satan tried to tempt him. Forty days in the wilderness, right before Jesus Christ went off to do this public ministry. All right, with bread and with the kingdoms and just and not having to die. Jesus Christ replied the same way every time. It is written. The word of God incarnate relied on the word of God written. And he set that example for us. In the midst of his deepest and darkest suffering, and torture on the cross. What was he doing while he was on the cross? He was muttering scripture. Remember Eloi, Eloi Lama Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, that's all that scripture records. But he was reciting Psalm 22, which doesn't stop there, but places all the hope that God will hear him that God will answer. And so, you know, I, I just talked about memory verses. Memory verses are a wonderful thing to do as a Christian. There are bad ways to do memory verses. If you just hold on to one verse, if you don't know much of the Bible, and you have a couple verses, you can be very dangerous with those verses. And everything winds up being proof texted. Oh, do not suffer a fool. Do, do not talk to a fool lest you get dragged down into their foolishness. If that's all you know of the wisdom literature, then you're just going to avoid talking to everybody. All right? Is that possibly what God intends for us? Or is this, there also a verse that says, talk to a fool and tell them to stop being a fool. Maybe you'll get them to stop. You'll save their life. All right, so 
Don't, do, don't use memory verses that way. But this is how you use memory verses. Memory verses kind of operate like checklists do for surgeons and fighter pilots. When you're training as a surgeon, all right, and as a fighter pilot, you learn all of these checklists. You have to learn them constantly. You have to be able to recite them in your sleep. Not because all of surgery and all of flight boils down to those checklists, but in the midst of a spontaneous situation, being reminded by the checklist will remind you of everything that you have to do. Because things go wrong out there. In flight, in surgery, and in our lives as we deal with temptation. So knowing scripture as memory verses will hopefully in the midst of a temptation jog your memory to what? To all of scripture which teaches you of the goodness and the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. And hopefully that will make that which you are tempted by ugly in comparison. And so I encourage you, like one of my seminary professors did, I hope that you will become scripture memory monsters. That you will just be a voracious eater of God's word so that you might be one who is able to speak God's word. It was good enough for our Savior. I think we ought to take a page from that. And lastly, it causes us to hate our sin. Another John Owen quote. Do you mortify? Not do you get horrified in embarrassments, but do you mortify? Do you put your sin to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't start your fight with sin, Owen says, without intending to follow it through. He says it's like fighting a serpent, a big, big snake. Don't get into a fight with that snake unless you intend to kill it dead. And he is saying what scripture is saying. Sin is a killer. It was the killer from the start. It's what separated us from our God and sentenced us to death. Never mind salt or high fructose corn syrup or trans fats or this week I think it's 32 ounce big gulps. All right? This is what kills. And Psalm 139, 23 shows us the kind of hard work that we are called to do every day. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the life everlasting. Surely Jesus was thinking about this passage as he taught us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What we are being given here is free license to hate. You know, the Bible doesn't give us much opportunity to hate, but it tells us we can hate right here. You have free license to hate 
sin. First and foremost, your sin. Don't twist it around and make it other people's sin first. We're going to get to that. You are free to hate your sin. As you see what it cost. It should have cost your life. And Jesus Christ paid that cost for you. That alone should cause you to hate your sin because you love your Savior. To hate our sin because it is displeasing to God and because it separates us from Him. You know, and there are so many things that we need to put to death. Even good things that our hearts would cause to tempt us to sin by following them. You know, this week, I had a hard time falling into sin. And I was tempted by patriotism. Patriotism in itself is not sin. In fact, there's a lot of scripture that tells you, be concerned for where you're at. Love the nation that you are living in. Seek its good that you may prosper in it. And so there is no... There is no inherent contradiction in patriotism and in being a citizen of heaven. But this week, where my heart took me, is I see just those who are representing our goodwill and hoping to interject that goodwill into other countries, as I saw their dead bodies on the TV screens. And as I see our embassies you know, if you, you might not know this, but that's actually sovereign U.S. territory. An embassy represents the country that it belongs to. And so a U.S. embassy somewhere else is U.S. land. And an attack on that property is an attack on America. That's an act of war. And my heart responded and said, who are these people? Man, let's just bomb them back to the Stone Ages. All right, let's, let's do and make of that, those countries the only thing that they're good for. Let's turn them into parking lots and sand traps. How dare they? And so, you know, just my uh, patriotism, my love for this country which I served many years in uniform. And it was an entry game. Because is this what God requires of us? Is this how Jesus showed? You know, is this how we responded to his enemies? And to those who didn't kill people close to him, but he himself, how did he respond? In love and in grace. You know, I'm not saying or suggesting at all that murderers should not be brought to justice. Oh, I advocate that wholeheartedly. And I am not a pacifist. In fact, I think pacifists are wrong. All right, I'm probably going to get in trouble for that, but, you know, just... But, here, there is no room for this wholesale hatred of those also made in the image of God. Real patriotism from love for country. 
Love should not lead to murderous revenge. You know, but where else can desire for good things cause us, tempt us to sin? You know, I said all the things that New York City's mayor has outlawed recently, right? Concern for your health is a good thing, but not when it becomes an ultimate thing. All right? This body is a temple given by God, meant for good works. So go and do good works with it and take care of it so it will last long as you do those good and dangerous and courageous works. But you know what? You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And it is not worth your time and your energy and your heart to give up everything to try to keep this life going. Your children, you know, there, we are called to raise and to care for and to love our children and to prosper them. How do we do that? And, man, here on Long Island, we have it and do it the worst out of anywhere else I see in the country. Between Swimming lessons and tennis lessons and language lessons and camps, an unbelievable number of camps and just I don't, more language lessons and just more sports and more after-school activities and all to get into college. And if that's what we give up everything for, if that's where we direct all of our energies, what will our kids have learned from us? When they get to college, will they learn about, oh, wow, got to spend time with the Lord? Or, man, I better apply myself to my studies. I better do all these things that my parents raised me doing. And it's not an either-or. None of this is an either-or. But where is your heart? You know, or lastly, connection to other people, to relate deeply with them. But then there's the temptation. Wow, the deepest, the most physical connection that I can have to someone else is in sex. Maybe we're at that point. Maybe just because I want to keep this relationship that is so good. You see, we can tempt ourselves with all sorts of good things to do what God tells us not to do. So let me end with this. One last John Owen quote. To believe that he will preserve us is, indeed, a means of preservation. All right? Pray. Lead us not to temptation. Praying that is in itself a way that God will lead us away from temptation, knowing that we have hearts that want to be tempted. God will certainly preserve us and make a way of escape out of the temptation, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13. And we are to pray for what God has already promised. And once again, as we pray, as we pray, deliver us from the evil one. Let us remind ourselves every day, Jesus Christ and has come, and he has made good on that promise. He has answered that prayer. Let us turn to our Savior and find relief and rest and deliverance. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you such thanks because we know that this is not a throwaway line. 
And in fact, in this line, we see Jesus Christ foreshadowing, anticipating what he had come to do. He would be our rescue, our deliverance from our sins, from the evil one himself and from death. And he would do that through his death on the cross. And so, as we pray this, Lord, help us to pray this confidently as we trust in you, our Father, and turn our eyes, the eyes of our heart, again and again to your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.